Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Andrea Fender Michael LaMangelo Mark Smith Kitty McKeon Nathan Lowell Benjamin Roberts Miss Calendar J.R. Murdoch With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, Episode 3. Hello, I'm Kitty Nikian, the cartoonist of the Crud Rat Project, which you can find out all about at www.crudrat.com. Go, check it out, you'll love it. You're listening to Episode 3 of Free Will, and this is the story so far. In Washington, Senator William Shelley's long game depends on getting the Persians who are blackmailing him to believe he's changed his vote to appease them. But in order to save his neck, he needs the president to sign on to a plan for lunar governance guaranteed to provoke a revolution. Between planets, Joss Kyle, left with no other choice after his improvised escape from the clutches of Douglas Reeves on Nineveh, has made a dangerous gamble for his life that rests on him pulling off the impossible. Stealth in space. Meanwhile, on the lunar surface, a lonely girl has just been found by a search party intending to take her home and force her into a life of slavery. And now, Episode 3 of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 10. Lunar Surface. 23 November, 2129. The radio in her helmet was silent. The man who had her cornered wasn't talking to his buddies. Even ten meters away, he towered over her. The girl who used to be Emma Hale took a step backward. He took a step toward her, keeping the distance between them constant. He held the rope taut between his hands as if he expected to be able to strangle her with it. The lights in his helmet weren't on, just a faceless, nameless creature trying to steal her and kill her so that they could prove that nobody escaped. He wasn't going to. She took another step back and her heel ran into a small rock. She gave it an extra kick, sending it, she hoped, about another two meters behind her. He closed the distance again. She took one more step back and tripped. Before she hit the ground, he pounced for her, both arms reaching out to grab her like tentacles. She had about a second's lead on him, enough to roll over and grab the rock. She kept rolling, pushing back to her feet as the man thudded uselessly on the ground behind her. She jumped onto his back and bashed the back of his neck with the obsidian flake, cutting through his skin press suit with the razor edges. Her own fingers burned as her suit tore at the stone, so she plunged it in again, ripping a hole long enough across the back of his neck that the suit's self-healing gel wouldn't be able to seal it again. Blood and little white globules pushed up from the man's neck around the edges of her makeshift knife. She stood up again and staggered back. She'd never even killed a rabbit or a goat before. Girls weren't allowed into the rabbit warrens until after menarche, and she'd only ever had to milk the goats as punishment, so didn't quite know what the different tissues looked like. She glanced down at her own hand. She was bleeding through a dozen minor lacerations in her glove. It hurt like the devil, but the gloves had extra healing gel in them because the lunar rocks were so sharp, and she could see the holes sealing themselves as the gel layer pushed out and glued the edges of the cuts together. She wouldn't be able to use her right hand very well, but out here she didn't need to. The voice of her assailant finally came to her over the radio link. 
She stood there, watching him writhe like a fish that had fallen out of its tank, trying to reach back and close the rib in his suit or pull out the stone dagger. Some part of her mind wondered if perhaps she shouldn't be running again, but the eerie, macabre ballet kept her attention. It was like a holographic fractal dance, except it had a form and a voice. A strange voice that got more pinched and thin the longer it went on. She didn't have long to watch. When she looked up again, she saw another man running straight toward her, and a ways behind him and off to the right, another man wearing an air jet bounded across the top of the rock, circling wide around her as if he meant to trap her from behind. Her obsidian shard was still stuck awkwardly in the fishman's neck, and he was lying on her toe bottle line. There wasn't anything to do but run for it. She sprinted as fast and long as she could toward the maze of rocks. It trailed uphill a little ways to the east, to a small range of jagged mountains, maybe enough for her to get lost in, maybe hard and sharp enough that there wouldn't be any dust to mark her trail. Running hard enough that even with the Respirocyte she was heaving, she leapt up onto one rock, then the next, picking her way over the closely packed boulder tops toward a rough-hewn ravine. About a hundred meters to go, she made a long leap between two rocks and risked a twirl in midair, twisting all the way around to check on her pursuit. The running man was scrambling out from between some rocks about 30 meters back, but the jetpack man wasn't anywhere she could see. She over-rotated, landed just past frontways again, sprawling sideways and tumbling off the rock she'd been aiming for. The ground smacked her hard on her left thigh, then on her helmet as it bashed into the basalt from the 10-meter fall. She couldn't afford to stop, no matter how much it hurt, no matter that without her extra air she was going to wind up dead in another three days, she couldn't let them catch her. Heaving to her knees, she looked up and around again. They were probably still close. She could hear them babbling back and forth in some kind of code, probably matching their moves to trap her somewhere. But they couldn't see her now. She crouched low and ran forward into the shelter of the ravine. She didn't look back. She couldn't risk another fall. She just ran, taking every turn she could, then realizing that they'd probably think she'd do that. So she ran on straight for a while and then turned at birthday intervals. First turn at the fourth split in the rock for April. Second turn at the twelfth split for the day of the month she was born. Then repeating it again, this time turning right instead of left. Her helmet's clock insisted it was only an hour that she ran the gauntlet, but she was sure it was longer. Somewhere around the 40-minute mark, the voices faded to static, then stopped. She was out of range, maybe, or they'd decided she could hear them. If they thought she could understand anything they were saying, they were overthinking. Maybe that's why they couldn't find her. They expected her to know more about that sort of thing than she did. But she didn't. And now she didn't know if she was ever going to get out of this maze. The rock walls stretched for 20 or 30 meters straight up on either side, and the branching passages were getting less frequent. She kept walking more for something to do than anything else. Even if she escaped, she was as good as dead. It was dark down here, too. The headlights on her helmet didn't show her much, other than how even the ground was for the next couple dozen meters. What had been a run gradually morphed into a trudge as the passage got more cluttered and clogged with debris, maybe fallen from some asteroid impact thousands of years ago back at the beginning of the world. She was never going to make it out. There wasn't even a reason to keep walking. She could just sit down, put some music on, and die peacefully. At least she'd die free with nobody owning her. But she wasn't going to die sitting on a pointy rock. 
She was going to sit somewhere comfortable so that she'd have a good memory to hold on to when they made her clean the toilets in the celestial realm. That's what God would make her do for running off. That or something else just as demeaning. Over the next hill of rubble, there would be a good place to sit. It'd have to be. Not everything could be pointy. Not even up on the surface among the basalt spires. She crested the next ridge and started down, but she hadn't gotten more than three steps over the top when the jetpack man descended right in front of her, facing the other way. She froze. He couldn't hear her, there wasn't any air to carry sounds, and he couldn't see her as long as she was behind him. Her headlights, though, he hadn't spotted them yet, and in these black rocks they didn't reflect much. Their beams didn't quite reach him, but they'd give her away if she moved wrong. She switched them off. Unfortunately, she was standing on rubble, and if she moved, she'd knock a rock loose, and he'd see it or feel it. She held position, her left foot up in the air, balancing poorly on the balls of her right, but the rock wouldn't hold her. She felt it slipping under her. Nothing she could do would stop it. It shot forward from under her feet, tipping her back onto her oxygen bottle. The rock hit the jetpack man on the back of the leg. He half collapsed and then fired his jets to right himself, turning in midair and coming back down almost on top of her. It was all she could do to keep from slipping down the slope. Every time she tried to get some traction to dodge out of the way, the rocks tumbled again. The jetpack man descended on her like an octopus smothering a feeder fish. She felt his hands grab her flailing arms and yank her upright, pinning them to her sides. He was strong, maybe three times her size, and nothing she did loosened his grip one jot. She looked up. Her headlamps were on again. She'd knocked the switch in the fight, and at this range she could see his face through the faceplate in his helmet. He was... not angry. Not determined. Relieved? He leaned toward her like he meant to kiss her, even through the helmets, and she struggled afresh, trying to wriggle out of his grip, but she couldn't stop his helmet touching hers. Stop struggling. I'm not gonna hurt you. She could hear his actual voice, not over the radio, but in her helmet anyway, like it was... The glass. That was it. The glass was conducting it. They showed her this trick in the surface gardening class, a way to talk without cluttering up the airwaves. She stopped struggling. She wouldn't speak to him, though. That was another part of the deal. No matter what, she was never going to speak to another man again as long as she lived. They didn't deserve it. And this one was going to take her back to... I'm not going to take you back. Something's happened. He wasn't speaking with a New Zion accent. He sounded like the tourists they sometimes got up from that place on Earth. Cauliflower or something. He had a cauliflower accent. I'm going to put you down. Don't run. He still hadn't called his mate on the radio. He lowered her to the ground against the wall, but kept her cornered. His sheer size made her quaver in front of him, but she knew that even if he was a pervert, he couldn't do anything to her without killing himself. There wasn't any air out there. She felt around for another rock, just in case, and found a nice heavy one. She wrapped her fingers around it and waited, trying to judge the right moment when she could bash his knees in without him hurting her back. But he kept his eyes, and his lights, on her while he unhooked himself from his jetpack with its two spare gas bottles. He set it down behind him and stepped forward again, making sure to grip her arm so she couldn't swing at him, then pressed his helmet to hers again. There's enough air in that third tank to get you within radio distance of Luna City if you use the two jet tanks carefully. Fire a quick burst every time you take off, then land normally. When you get to open ground, run. Don't stop. Don't look back. Don't do anything but get your ass to Luna City. She wanted to ask why, but she wasn't going to. She wasn't going to give him the satisfaction. He was probably just putting her through another game, toying with his dinner like a cat. 
He wasn't anyone she recognized, probably just some dumb groundhog that took a job doing surface work for the church. Say something. She shook her head. Okay then, don't. But get there. Alive. There's a message in that pack under the tanks. Make sure you get it to the Green Lady. If you don't, a lot of people are going to die. Soon. Do you understand me? She nodded. Good. Stand up. I'll put it on you. She complied. After stepping into the leg harness, she tightened the straps on herself while he adjusted the shoulder harness at her back. Once they were done, he came around to the front again and pressed his helmet to hers. Go straight up, then turn north. You'll hit open ground in half a click. From there, it's a straight shot. No more mountains till you hit the realm of tranquility. You get me? She nodded. Good. Don't fuck it up. He stepped back and spread his arms. She took the jet controls in her fists and pressed the trigger with her right thumb. She flew up into the sky, looking down in time to see the jetpack man smash his helmet against the wall. She cleared the rim of the cliff and knocked the helmet lights with her chin. She could fly by the hut, at least until it was time to land. They wouldn't be able to track her by her lights. Luna City still lay well beyond the horizon, but not for long. Chapter 11 White House, Washington, D.C. 22 November, 2129. Senator Shelley? Bill looked up from his Dead Tree magazine, which he hadn't been reading, when the underling emerged from the Oval Office. Yes? The President will see you now. If you'll come with me, he's taking brunch in the Rose Garden. Bill folded the zine and set it back on the arm of the chair where he'd found it, picked up his hat and coat, and followed the girl north to the press secretary's office, then right. The French doors at the end of the hall opened onto the west colonnade, the moisture streaks creeping into the tile work from the Rose Garden proper. The President stood on the lawn, more than halfway to the far end, ambling seemingly at random through the snow. Some brunch. He did not acknowledge his minion when she announced, Mr. President, Senate Majority Leader Shelley to see you. Nor did he seem to notice when Bill approached and stood, as protocol demanded, ten feet behind and to the left of the dotard. The customary waiting game, whereby the higher-ranking man forces the lower-ranking man to waste time in his presence until it is clear that the top dog barks only when it pleases him, dragged out for close on to five minutes while the president studied intently the trees lining the west end of the garden by the footpath. The frosty wind blowing in from the garden's exposed southern face did nothing to enhance Bill's sense of welcome. He pushed away the little tickle it brought to his throat, being unwilling to let the old fart win the waiting game. Truth to tell, the president was only 80, but he was the ancient kind of 80, from the school of thought that held rejuves, nanites, anti-agapics, and those who used them in the kind of contempt once reserved only for uppity slaves. Not that a good politician would be caught dead uttering such views in public, but then he didn't need to. His mere appearance was enough to secure his bioconservative voting bloc without upsetting enough of the techno-progressives to do him major damage during election years. You see that plum tree, Bill? The president didn't turn to check that Bill was listening, and intentionally used the familiar when the two of them were anything but. Been out here thirty years. Never once has it dropped its leaves before the middle of December. 
Everyone said it was a freak. Some damn genetic engineering experiment. But I had my people run tests on it, and it's perfectly normal. That's the thing about nature. It does extraordinary things, and nobody knows why. Not like with people. When one of them does something out of the ordinary, there's always a reason. Bill ignored the dig and the Luddite mumbo-jumbo and said, There's nothing quite like a good tree, Mr. President. They give shade and shelter and they last forever. The worst thing is when they get cut down by a fungus when they're still young and haven't started to bear fruit yet. You said you needed to see me on an emergency matter. I do. Mr. President, the Luna... I read the bill last night. You want me to use the military to police that bunch of lawless rascals and outlaw the locks? To begin with, we need to... You know what it is about a tree that holds on to its leaves after the others drop? It knows how to deal with the weather. That's why it gets to stay here, even after they redesigned the garden and pulled out all the fruit trees. Trees that don't cope with the weather tend to get frozen out or pulled up in a storm. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 makes lunar governance a matter of international law, Senator. He said, Senator, as if it were the semantic equivalent of little boy. It is therefore the position of this administration that the troubles on the lunar colony are a foreign policy matter. Your committee will cede oversight of the colony to the State Department, effective the first of the year. With all due respect, Mr. President, the lunar colony was formed by Congressional Charter to the Kaiser Corporation, and our oversight is perfectly constitutional. I will not introduce the motion. The president sighed, as if dealing with a very slow student. <sighs> Bill, we can't hold this colony against a Persian attack, and your half-assed notions of dealing with the threat will guarantee us a loss. I want that transfer of authority to the executive branch handled as quickly and as quietly as possible. I'm sorry, Mr. President, but I'm afraid I can't do that. The president still regarding the plum tree, tapped the page button on his wrist. As if out of nowhere, a member of the secretarial pool emerged, resplendent in his just-shy-of-breaking-dress-code raw silk skirt and leggings. Yes, Mr. President. For the first time, the President turned so he was facing Bill, but he focused his attention on the staff. Shane, contact the Attorney General and have him send over those subpoenas he's been holding. He'll know which ones. The president began a stroll back toward the Oval Office, but stopped when he was between Bill and the secretary, then turned around and squinted at the tree once more. Oh, and have the groundskeeper pull that tree out. It doesn't fit with the rest of the plan. Yes, sir. Without another word, the president abandoned the winter air for the embrace of his office, leaving Bill alone in the cold. Chapter 12. Fugitive. Destination unknown. 10 November, 2129. In three hours, Fugitive would move out of Eclipse with the cargo ship, slipping naked in front of the sun. 
giving her the freedom to fire her engines for the final major course correction for the Earth-Luna system. The angle of approach would determine whether she could easily enter the atmosphere. Joss had until that course correction to decide whether he was going to aim for Gagarin at L5 and disappear, or if he'd go all in and head for the surface. Fugitive's active sensors were busily humming in their last sensor burst before the next move. There were a couple asteroids and a comet ahead, dodging them would complicate Fugitive's hard-won invisibility unless the little ship's computer came up with a very elegant navigation solution. After the little twists in the drama at Nineveh, Joss took a perverse comfort that the usual curses of God's ill humor would continue to plague the journey, reminding man that he never should have been in space in the first place. It probably wasn't the first time a god took it into his head to fuck with an inoffensive fugitive on the run for his life. There was that one matter of Poseidon and the wayward Ithacan a few thousand years back, and probably a few million more down through the millennia. But Joss Kyle had no time for gods and their sadistic little laboratory experiments. He had more pertinent revelations at hand. For his part, he had discovered one immutable, eternal truth about the universe. Weightlessness sucked. It wasn't that he got space sick. He'd acclimated to near weightlessness in close quarters riding the tube during the months on Nineveh. His stomach was fine. The rest of it was driving him nuts. Nothing stayed where he put it. Random items would simply float freely hither and thither on the subtle air currents from the ventilation system. Sure, they had electromagnets he could turn on with the flip of a switch, but it was something he had to think about, and then he had to remember what wall or floor or random protruding handle he'd stuck the goddamn thing to, and that meant he had to remember which way up he was floating when he let it go, and that meant... Well, it meant he was more or less damned to the eleventh circle of hell, eternal pointless irritation, until he hit ground. And apparently, he was condemned to suffer through it without the book he'd been reading. Course projection complete. Pilot input required. Fugitive's AI spoke in a low, insistent, no-nonsense voice, and the tactical display on the pilot's console showed a three-axis view of the plotted course through the cosmic interlopers and toward the Earth-Moon system. The jogging course would require two minor corrections a little under a day after their departure burn. Joss kicked off the ceiling and sailed down to the pilot's console. The screen said he had three hours before everything needed to be tied down for the run. That meant he had to go deal with her again. She'd probably want to make her cooperation contingent on a hand of cards. She couldn't get enough of it. At one time, Joss had fancied himself the game's most obsessive devotee, but his passing interest in the Battle of Guile had nothing on the religious ecstasy Alyssa seemed to achieve every time she ran her fingers over the curves on an ace of spades. He hit the intercom button. Alyssa Hartman to the bridge. He switched it off and toggled the hatchway open, then went over his checklist to make sure the program was working well. He'd already used some of Mondu's AI tweaks to grab the transport's transponder signal and convince its AI to take on Fugitive's identifier. The first maneuver in the run would be a roll to point Fugitive's radiators away from Nineveh and the normal Nineveh Lunar Express routes and dump the heat as fast as she could. Moving only with inertia, internal lights running on batteries and life support suspended, the ship's heat signature should be completely masked from the point of view of anyone who might be watching. Three hours after that, she'd be well in eclipse of the sun, where infrared detection from Nineveh would be useless in any case. The 45 nanolayers of metamaterials in her hull would, once electrified, 
Help the sun's light in all bands wrap around her like water in a stream, making her effectively invisible. At the end of the run, she'd reorient and fire her torch, bringing her back up enough to close the remaining few million kilometers in another two weeks. They'd probably reach their destination, wherever it was, a few hours before Joss finally decided he couldn't cope with Alyssa anymore and simply shot her. You called? Alyssa's voice grated behind him. Joss made a point of not turning around. The less human he behaved toward her, the better. We're executing a course correction in three hours, then I'm shutting down life support. In the closet in your room, you'll find a pressure suit and a tent. Hit the head, get into the suit, pitch the tent against the floor nearest the aft wall, and crawl in. I'll join you there once we shut down. What the? I didn't ask for questions. If you're not ready in two hours and thirty minutes, I'll drug you and toss you in myself. We're going cold for a while. Joss heard a sharp intake of breath. Doubtless she was trying to keep herself from snapping at him. He saw a shadow of a reflection in one of his display screens. She looked like she'd just watched him disembowel her favorite puppy. Good. Keep her angry, as much as possible, and still keep her loyalty. More important now that he'd be spending 24 hours cuddling up next to her for warmth. He decided to offer her a little olive twig, just to twist the knife. Bring a deck of cards and a book to read, if you like. Go to hell. Probably. I get moving. I'm not going in there with you. Suit yourself. If you stay out here, you'll be breathing ice droplets in four hours, and you'll suffocate in six, if you haven't already frozen to death. Joss kept one eye on her so he could duck if she found something to throw at him. But she didn't. She merely gripped a handhold next to the entryway, her free fist idly tickling the pocket where she would normally keep her gun. Now get off my bridge. I'll see you in 180 minutes. Without another word, Alyssa left his bridge. Joss toggled the door closed behind her, hoping he hadn't pushed too hard. She really was turning out to be more trouble than she was worth. At least he hoped she was. Depending on how the next few hours played out, the situation could wind up reversed. She could prove to be worth more trouble than he could manage. Joss had his two flight plans plotted and laid in, and he knew which one he should take but that road led straight to either Percy Scott or Bill Shelley. He had to clear his name and pick up some extra insurance and mix a little revenge into the bargain. He expected to have a plan covering the how in place by now. Thanks to Alyssa and the constant distraction she imposed, he didn't. Given enough time, he was sure he could come up with something, but his brain wouldn't give. Every scenario he ran, he couldn't see a way to do it on his own. That left disappearing as the only rational choice. Save his skin, forget trying to retain any of his old self. Find a tolerable life, change all his biometrics, graft in some cyber organics to help him keep his false past straight, and slip into a new life like a ghost through a wall. Joss prided himself on his rationality, but this was too much to swallow. Shelley had already cost him two lives, and the man was bound to make life miserable for a lot more people before he was through with whatever he was up to. If Joss couldn't have Phalanx, he wanted another chance at Plymouth. At least then he'd still be in the peace, and there'd be some continuity. Fucking Alyssa Hartman. But she wasn't the only problem. This whole fiasco fit, somehow, into the brewing war. Joss might even be the pebble that started the avalanche. 
he'd predicted it would happen, had told the previous president that it was inevitable. But even predictable wars had players and stakes. Joss had been on the outskirts of the game long enough that he wasn't sure he knew the players anymore, and with six days to go over all his old contacts and read all the briefs he had on file, he was less sure than ever that he knew the stakes. Who was Reeves really working for, and what was his game? And why was Cassie, who he now knew had to be the infamous Green Lady, working with him? What did he have on her? Shelley, though, was the biggest puzzle. Joss could prove he was in someone's pocket, hidden in a little cubbyhole back in America he had all the proof he needed, but he'd never been able to find out who. Without knowing who was pulling Shelley's strings, he didn't know Shelley's long game either. Without knowing those things, he didn't know what to plan for. How can you bring back a get-out-of-jail-free card when you've never seen a Monopoly set? And, once he made Planetfall, how would he get rid of Alyssa? Chapter 13 Portland, Oregon 20 November, 2129 the rain fell hard enough to draw a curtain across the street. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Lynx, USMC, stood before the bay window in his 20th century craftsman, looking out at Roseway Park, the long, maple-planted grass picnic ground that divided Northeast 72nd down the middle. He sipped a cup of coffee, patted the head of Sherlock, his shepherd mix, and waited for Connie to pull into the driveway, just in the nick of time. A PPD lay on the end table where he'd tossed it a few minutes before, still displaying his orders from General Assange. Personal orders from a three-star general in the Pentagon, the kind of high-profile assignment that he'd waited his whole life for. Your background is NYC SWAT commander, and in light of your excellent record of service to the Corps, you are hereby ordered to report to Security Commissioner Muriel Mandelbrot in Luna City, Luna, on 22 November 2129 there to assist in her training her security forces in counterterrorism and riot control techniques. You may choose a team from the USAF and USMC Officer Corps to assist you and to help prepare the colony for possible Persian ground attack. You will coordinate with Lieutenant Colonel Byron at Ring Alpha, who will be training the people there to deal with Persian space attacks. The opportunity of a lifetime, and he had to leave on a military transport from PDX in half an hour. It was ten minutes drive, ten minutes walk, He'd gotten the notice an hour ago. Just enough time to pack. The highest urgency. The reputation of the honor and integrity of the Corps is built on the conduct of distinguished officers such as yourself. Good luck, and Godspeed. No one got letters this complimentary from Asanji. This was big, and it came at the wrong time. Connie hadn't answered her phone. She would still have been in class when he called. Probably forgot to turn it on when she went on break. And in that rain, she wouldn't make it here in time to see him off. They'd decided just last month to start the family. They'd waited until his last tour was nearly up. Twenty years in the Corps after ten years on the NYPD. He was career. Now he was set to retire in four months. Now they were sending him to the moon. And if war broke out, they'd convince him to stay on. He would, too. He cared more about his oath than his pension. And it would break Connie's heart. Five minutes left, two sips of coffee to go. The rain kept right on, and Connie's car didn't come. 
Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Lynx jotted a hasty note, promising a more detailed email, telling her he loved her, telling her he'd try to be back in time for the birth of their son. Then he shouldered his pack, locked the door behind him, and jogged through the rain to his car. You've been listening to Episode 3 of Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Mark Smith as the Jetpack Man, Michael LaMangelo as the Fish Man, Andrea Fender as the Moon Girl, Nathan Lowell as Senator William Shelley, Benjamin Roberts as Shane, Kitty Nakian as the Aide, and Miss Callender as Alyssa Hartman. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1999 and 2011 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2013 Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Deep in space, in the bowels of the wheel, they run. Meet Mara, Crudrat, born to slavery, trained to run, to jump, to clean the great machines that drive the world. And when puberty strikes, expelled, exiled, set adrift to starve and die. From the mind of Gail Carragher, the author of Soulless comes the story of one girl without a home and one monster chained and ransomed and their relentless struggle to win their freedom. Gail Carragher's Crud Rat, a full cast production directed by J. Daniel Sawyer, the Parsec-nominated producer of Down From Ten and The Antithesis Progression with original music by composer Danny Shade. Gail Carragher's Crud Rat. Kickstarting now. Get involved at www.crudrat.com. What fresh hell is this? Marines at the ring tasked to counter terrorism? What could possibly go wrong, right? Out there in space, days travel from any real government establishment with all that uninhabited wilderness around it, like the stuff that little girl is trudging through to get to Luna City. Gives me the willies. The production load is finally getting light enough that I can work ahead on free will again, so I'm laying track in front of this train as fast as I possibly can. Those of you waiting on casting callbacks from me should be hearing something in the next two or three weeks, assuming I can get any sleep with this Kickstarter campaign going. Speaking of that Kickstarter, we're off to a rip-roaring start. We've gotten 20% funded in the first 48 hours. Now comes the hard part. Reaching people who haven't heard of my productions before, or whose radar I fell off of for being gone for so long. If you haven't taken a look at the project page, which you can find the link to at www.crudrat.com, right on the main page, bottom left quadrant, take ten minutes and do so. Trust me, even if you decide it's not for you and you don't want to back it, you'll get to see a fun short film about all manner of geeky things, complete with doodle art and computer graphics and a cartoon of my beard growing. And if you've jumped in already, well, let's face it, you rock. 
Thank you. Be sure to tell your buddies next time you're at work, and that brother of yours with the 10-year-old daughter who's going to need this book in a year or two. Because it's going to sound odd given the kind of dark stuff I'm writing, particularly in Free Will, but I am fucking sick of dystopias, particularly young adult dystopias. Not that I'm going to name names. But it's really easy to imagine things going to hell. It's kind of a lazy writer thing. But it's harder and better to imagine how things could work out, even if it takes a powerful struggle along the way. Crutrat is that kind of book, an adventure that sets its sights on the stars and imagines what kind of trouble we might get into if we don't succumb to war and death and plague and global warming and bad politics and irresponsible love interests and all the other horror of the day stuff that you find filling the young adult bookstore shelves. Getting this done and helping it find its audience can help start to change that market for the better, to create a hunger for the adventure and daring again. I've got my own books in this vein that are in process of writing, too. But Crudrat is ready for prime time right now. So all of us around here decided to lead off with it. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get back to the grim future I'm working out in Free Will. This week, we got to hear the first of J.R. Murdoch, another great writer who's going to be in a lot of bit parts throughout Free Will. He played General Assange this week, which mispronounced terribly when I recorded it the first time. I may have to go back and re-record that scene. I feel like an idiot. And he'll show up in some other roles, which he had a lot of fun recording. And a lot of booze, I think, if his outtakes are an indication. He writes really offbeat middle-grade fiction, stuff aimed at grade schoolers, stuff like My Teacher is a Vampire and My Principal is a Zombie. He's got a whole series of those, and other things in the vein of R.L. Stein with this extra dose of surreal comedy. You can find his stuff at ofgnomesanddwarves.com, and it's really a hoot if you're on the prowl for some great stuff to read to your kids at bedtime. Or, you know, to read to yourself and pretend you're nine again, because eh, that's fun too. We're busting our respective hindquarters here to bring you some new stuff that I'm just itching to tell you about, but I think I'll wait. There was something about a couple new books, and there was this video series and serialized comics, and oh right, there was that other thing. Well, more about that later. Thank you all for the great feedback so far. I'm still getting reports that the Uber feed is not working in some iTunes stores, so if you have any info on that, please send it along. It'll help me find the problem and get it fixed. Remember that you can send me questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats via email at feedback at jdsawyer.net, leave comments on the blog at jdsawyer.net, tweet me at dsawyer, or leave voicemail at 612-567-7595. And if you're enjoying yourself, please do tell your friends. Post a review on iTunes, blog about us, tweet about us, and pelt your enemies with CD or memory stick copies to get people hooked. And remember that you can buy my books just about everywhere, including signed paperbacks at jdsawyer.net, or you can leave a tip in the tip jar at jdsawyer.net, a portion of which goes to our masterful composer, Danny Shade. I'll see you next week with another episode of The Next 10,000 Hours, which is going to be even zanier than last one. I hope you all survive. And the week after that with episode four of Free Will. And until then, I leave you with... The nagging questions. What will happen to the Moon Girl, and will she make it to Luna City? What job does General Assange have for Thomas Lynx, and what does it mean for the future of the Moon? 
how is Joss going to get rid of Allie and see his way to safety? And, most important of all, what is the secret message the Jetpack Man had for the Green Lady? Find out next time. And until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.